0: If you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. We're going to read a passage with which most of you are very familiar, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless his word. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread... But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing on it. Father, we give thanks as we come before you through Christ and in the Spirit to hear Christ speak to his church through his word by the Spirit. We're thankful for the word that Paul has written here, a word that was ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit for our own sake, for the sake of your church in every age. We pray that as we consider it, We would understand the nature of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament that you've given to the church. What a weighty matter it really is. And at the same time, Father, we pray that we would understand what it means to partake in a worthy manner so that we might not be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We come before you mindful that you're a holy God. And that our only reason that we can come before you is because we've been clothed with Christ. And your spirit is at work. And we pray that he would work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, as we've walked through 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34 by way of reading, I know that you've come as sort of this being an extension of the series we've done on baptism. And maybe to put your minds a bit at rest... Tonight, we're really looking at a point of agreement between those who would call themselves Reformed Baptists and those who would call themselves Presbyterian and Reformed. In other words, those who would hold to, let's say, confessions from the Baptist perspective or those who would hold to historic confessions from the Presbyterian and Reformed perspective actually agree on the nature of the Lord's Supper and who ought to be taking it. And so, as we come tonight... I want you to know that here's what we all agree on. Now, I want to give one caveat. I'm not talking generally about evangelicals. You can go to various evangelical churches and see a number of things happening with regard to the Lord's Supper that are a total mess. I've participated in those practices that are a total mess. I've done that. Things that I look back now and go, that was so dumb. What were you doing? It was irreverent. It was inappropriate. I'm not talking about that when I talk about disagreement. What I'm talking about is what people in the confessionally reformed world, among Baptists and Presbyterian Reformed, have all held in common. And here's what they all believe. No one can take the Lord's Supper without a credible profession of faith. Now, why do we all agree on that question? We all agree because of the express teaching of Scripture with regard to two matters. First, we all agree because the express teaching of Scripture with regard to the nature of the Lord's Supper, what it is is a sacrament. It is an oft-repeated sacrament that confirms and nourishes faith. And second, because of the express teaching of Scripture regarding what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So the nature of the Lord's Supper itself, and what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So this evening we're going to look at those two issues. The nature of the Lord's Supper and what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Now we'll consider 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen 17-34 as we address those two issues. And then as soon as I'm done addressing those two issues, I want to draw out three implications. Now I could draw out ten implications, no problem. But for the sake of time, I'm going to draw out three with regard to our own practice with the Lord's Supper. So let's look first at the nature of the Lord's Supper. In order to understand the passage, we need to look briefly at the context. So notice there in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, when you gather as a church, is what he's saying. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. We need to understand the context. Notice that Paul is giving instructions to the church at Corinth. But in the following instructions, he's giving instructions to them. He's been responding to reports with regard to issues he's heard about... And he 's responding to reports he heard about in a letter. How do we know that? Because he tells us that in the Corinthian letter First Corinthians one eleven for it has been reported to me by chloe 's people that or 1 corinthians five one it 's actually reported that, or 1 Corinthians seven one now concerning the matters about which you wrote. you hear how he 's responding to reports he 's hearing, letters which they wrote to him, and there are issues for which Paul commends them for which Paul commends them. Look up at 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I've delivered them to you. So there's a commendation. But notice in this instruction, there's an issue here for which Paul does not commend them. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Go down to verse 22. Very end. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Here we're looking at a problem in Corinth. Paul does not commend them. In fact, he says something that's really strong. When you gather together as a church, it's not for the better, but for the worse. That's a pretty strong condemnation of their gatherings. You're supposed to gather together to stir one another up to love and good deeds, to hear from the resurrected Christ as he speaks to his church through the word and by the spirit. And he says, when you gather together, it's not for your good, it's, it's, it's for the worse. It's to your detriment. Why? What's the problem here? What's the problem? Well, some in the Corinthian community, in the Corinthian church, are not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. So some are partaking in an unworthy manner. Now, the question is, in what is their partaking Unworthy. In what way is their partaking unworthy? Well, there were divisions among them. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he says he believes it because the Lord is going to use that to show up the true believers. In fact, it's such a problem that Paul contends that when they come together, they're not really participating in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why? Why is it not the Lord's Supper? Look at verse 21 again. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I want you to keep these two issues in mind. Here's the first issue. Paul points out that they seem incapable of distinguishing between a regular meal that they should eat at home and the Lord's Supper. They cannot discern the difference between a regular meal and the Lord's Supper. That's the first problem. Second issue, they have no concern for their fellow believers. Now I want you to hear this. In the first issue, their inability to distinguish a regular meal from the Lord's Supper, they're failing to comprehend what the Lord's Supper is. They fail to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper. In the second issue he brings up, they have no concern for their fellow believers. What he's saying is, is essentially you're living like hypocrites. The rich are eating and drinking so much they're getting drunk while the poor are being left hungry. Please note the two problems here because they're exactly what Paul is addressing throughout this passage. The two problems, don't forget them. First, they are not discerning the nature of the Lord's Supper properly. They're treating it like every other meal. Second, they are not examining their own lives prior to taking the Lord's Supper. Rather, they're living in unrepentant sin against others in the church while taking the Lord's Supper. They're literally pushing the poor out of the way, eating all the food and getting drunk. You understand that's not a life well examined? Do you guys understand that? So Paul's going to instruct them in both of these regards. First, he's going to teach them about the nature of the Lord's Supper in verses 23 through 26. That's the first thing he's going to address, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Second, he's going to teach them what it means to partake in a worthy manner in verses 27 through 29. And then he'll apply it to their specific situation in verse 30 and following. So let's look at how Paul expresses the nature of the Lord's Supper, the nature of this sacrament. Look with me at verse 23 a passage with which you're all very familiar. Four, he's connecting it to the previous argument. You're not understanding the nature of the Lord's Supper. You're not participating in a worthy manner. How do I know that? Let's go generally to what the Lord's Supper is. Let's go and talk about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The first thing Paul is doing is telling them that he received this sacrament from the Lord. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That's who he received it from, the Lord. Who gave the Lord's Supper? Who instituted this sacrament in Christ's church? The Lord. Specifically here, a reference to Jesus. Jesus instituted this sacrament for the New Covenant Church to be continually practiced in the church. How do we know continually practiced? Listen to the language. For as often as you. For as often as you. Not, so when you do it once... For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, it assumes you're doing it more than once, doesn't it? Second, Paul tells us Jesus instituted this sacrament for his church on a particular night. When was it? Look there again. For I received in the Lord, verse 23, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So now we're told, When Jesus instituted this sacrament. Jesus is the one who instituted it. When did he do it? On the night when he's betrayed. Before we look at really the occasion of the Lord's Supper. Because it's really important to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper that night. Before we look at that. Let's look at what Paul tells us Jesus did that night. Look at the active verbs here. Notice what it says. For I the Lord, but also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Further after the supper, in the same way, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What we're considering here is the institution of the Lord's Supper, when he instituted it. So it'd be good to look at that directly So look with me. Keep your hands here. It's the only passage I'll have you turn to. I'll read from others to Luke 22. Let's look at the night Paul is referring to here. This is also covered in Matthew 26. And Mark and John, you guys know that. But we're going to look just at Luke 22. And I want to notice some details. Luke 22 and verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now notice some details here. First, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night when he's betrayed, which is also the night in which they had the Passover meal. Did you guys see that? They're having the Passover. Verse. Fifteen, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Look up at verse 7 of chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread. That's the feast on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So in some way, the Lord's Supper is tied to the Passover. In some way, it's tied to the Passover. Thus, if we want to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper, we must understand the Passover meal. What is Passover well, Passover was first the occasion upon which the Lord delivered Israel from the tenth plague while he judged Egypt. You guys remember this. If you remember, the Israelites were commanded to put blood on the doorpost, the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes, and they were to roast that lamb and consume it and have a meal and have unleavened bread with bitter herbs and have this whole meal together in their homes. And the angel of the Lord, when he came to kill the firstborn son, of all the households would spare all those who were in households that had obeyed the Lord and put the blood of the lamb there and consumed the Passover meal. It's not hard to see how Passover is an Old Testament type of the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, whose blood covers us so that we're saved from the wrath of God against our sins. In fact, Paul so clearly sees his connection that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He just calls him our Passover lamb. There's other feasts tied to this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? There's other feasts tied to this as well. In fact, three altogether. So clearly there's an important tie between Christ's work And the Passover, and Jesus is making that tie very clear. But that's not the only tie that Jesus is making to the Old Testament. Look at verse 20 in Luke 22 again. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten. By the way, you guys know in the original Passover, there's no cup with wine being passed around. That comes much later. It's never actually positively instituted in the Old Testament. We never find anywhere where it's instituted. But clearly, Jesus accepts it, receives it as... As a positive institution, so the cup. You Notice know says, "Saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, my blood." Jesus is clearly picking up the language from Exodus twenty four eight, and when Moses cut that covenant, if you guys remember, Exodus twenty four is where Moses cuts the covenant that we call the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. When he cuts that covenant. In those animals that are sacrificed, he puts blood on the altar in the book and he puts blood on the people. You guys remember this? And he says this. Moses says this in Exodus 24, 8. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. So the Lord's Supper is representing not merely that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's representing that Christ's blood is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant is cut in Christ. It represents for us that All the Old Testament, all the Old Covenant blood sacrifices consecrated the Old Covenant church so that they might come into the presence of God for worship. They needed those Old Testament blood sacrifices. Why? For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But those sacrifices in that covenant were temporary and typological sacrifices. They could not in and of themselves, bring forgiveness of sins. Slaughtering a lamb cannot, in and of itself, bring forgiveness of sins. And this is why Jesus also used the language that he does in the Lord's Supper. Only Christ's blood, which inaugurates the new covenant, can bring the once-for-all forgiveness of sins that we need to enter into God's presence. And so Matthew will pick up this language saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26, 28, at the Lord's Supper. In other words, what I'm saying is it's insufficient to argue that the Lord's Supper is merely a new covenant Passover. It's not merely a new covenant Passover. That's an insufficient argument. Rather, the Lord's Supper is telling us that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ's blood, all of them in his death. His sacrifice is bringing all the sacrificial types, the whole sacrificial system, to its fulfillment. His sacrifice of blood is cutting the new covenant in which Christ's people can finally enter into the true holy of holies. And the Lord's Supper is pointing to all of that. So the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of all that Jesus did for us. A remembrance. That's why whenever we take it, we do it in remembrance of him. Second, Jesus told the disciples he will not eat this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God in Luke twenty-two sixteen, 16. Remember that? I will not eat this with you again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is pointing to a further, now I'm going to use a big word, eschatological development of the Lord's Supper. What does he mean? What do I mean by that? End times development. There's going to be something further coming with this. One day, Jesus will drink it again with us. One day, Jesus will return and we'll have the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.7. Thus, as often, that's why Paul will say, as often as we eat of this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing and continuing sacrament in which we do this. And we do this remembering what he's done and proclaiming what he's done until his return. So go back to 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three through 26. And I want to notice the continual and active sense of our partaking the Lord's Supper. I want to notice that. Look there. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He's betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now notice the active sense here. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is is the new covenant, my blood, notice the active sense here, do this, now the continual, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as, there is the continual sense, you eat this bread and drink the cup, notice the active, active sense here, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whereas baptism is a sacrament that we receive one time. It's a sacrament we receive one time. And in a manner which is passive. Nobody baptizes themselves. You guys understand that? You are baptized. Right? Nobody says, now today I baptize myself in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? Somebody's baptizing you. It's an action done to you. It's passive and it happens once. The Lord's Supper is active and it goes on continually. Do this in remembrance. Do this in remembrance. When you do this, as often you do it, you're proclaiming. It's a continual remembrance that we do twice in verses 24 and 25. And we proclaim as often as we do it in verse 26. Thus the Lord's Supper is a sacrament you participate in again and again. And when you do this, you are remembering and proclaiming. But I want to take this one more step. Why take the Lord's Supper again and again? We take the Lord's Supper again and again. That's assumed. Why? 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 If you go to the really early church, they're not debating about whether or not to have it every week. They're debating over whether to have it every day or just once a week. We're debating now whether to have it once a month or once a quarter or once a year. Why? Why do we do it over and over again? Well, first, because the Bible teaches us to do it over and over again. That'd be the first answer, and that ought to be sufficient. But I want to explain why that is. It's a sacrament Christ has given his church that visibly reminds us of Christ's sacrifice for us and by which we visibly proclaim Christ's sacrifice for us. In these ways, the Lord's Supper visibly confirms God's promises to us in Christ. We visibly remember what Christ has done. We visibly proclaim what Christ has done in the Lord's Supper. And in these ways, we are continually having our faith confirmed. God's promises in Christ confirmed. But the Lord's Supper is also a participation in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Just flip there real quick. 1 Corinthians 10, which is just one chapter over from 11. And look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we somehow participate in Christ. When we drink the cup, somehow participate in his blood. When we eat the bread, we somehow participate in his body. When we were taking the Lord's Supper, we somehow feed upon Christ's body and drink Christ's blood. The early church, if you don't know this, was accused of cannibalism because of this very thing. Listen to Jesus in John 6, 53. Don't turn there, just listen. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood... We'll live forever. We know this becomes a difficult teaching for the people, isn't it? How do we eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood? Well, we do so with the mouth of faith. Did you catch that? With the mouth of faith. It's a mystery. Our union with Christ by faith is being nourished and built up by the Holy Spirit as we participate in Christ at the Lord's Supper. That is no small grace. It is one reason that we call the Lord's Supper a means of grace. Christ confirms and nourishes the faith of his church by giving them himself through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He confirms them in the faith and he nourishes them with his own body and blood. It's a glorious occasion for the church every time we partake. It is no ordinary meal, and we should not treat it as such. Rather, we want to partake of it in a worthy manner. Now that leads to our second major point. Let's look at partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29. Notice the changes that are going to come really automatically. You'll see them. Whoever therefore... Eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice first the logical connection. What does he say? Whoever what? Therefore. Therefore. It's a logical connection. Here's what Paul is arguing. Because this is the nature of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, this is what it requires to partake of it in a worthy manner. Because this is what you are doing. This is what it requires to participate in a worthy manner. Second, notice the change in the pronouns. Whoever, therefore, eats. Notice verse 28. Let a person, a person examine himself. Verse 29. For anyone, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's a change from second-person plural pronouns to third-person singular pronouns. Now, we're a pronoun-happy culture right now. We don't know what they mean or what their intended purpose was, but we seem to like to talk about them recently. Why does Paul make a pronoun change? Why does he do it? Well, Paul's saying... You Corinthians are not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, so let me explain. This is what the Lord's Supper is, verses 23 through 26. Therefore, this is what it means to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, and here comes the application, you aren't doing that. He goes from their specific issue to a general doctrinal truth. Then in verse 30, he'll come in and apply that general doctrinal truth to their specific issue. Look at verse 30. Notice the change. That is why many of you are weak and ill. So what is the general doctrinal truth that Paul's teaching? Well, first, the nature of the Lord's Supper, and second, what it means to be someone who partakes in a worthy manner. He's arguing that the nature of the Lord's Supper as an active and ongoing sacrament that confirms and nourishes Christ's church is such that we need to partake of it in a worthy manner. In fact, Paul takes this so far as to say that if you do not take in a worthy manner, then verse twenty seven, you are guilty notice the last word takes in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? To be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord is to take the Lord's supper in an irreverent manner. It's if you will, taking in a reverent manner is almost like you're guilty of crucifying Christ in some way. What do I mean by an irreverent manner? Well, the Lord's Supper is a symbol of Christ. One where Christ is present and we partake of him by the Spirit. And if you're treating it irreverently, then you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Think about it this way. We have a flag of our nation. It's a symbol, if you will, of our constitutional republic. If someone were to take the flag and step on it and burn it, we all understand that they if you will, Treating the flag and the nation it represents disrespectfully, irreverently, etc. We understand that, right? To treat something irreverently like this, we understand. We see it in our culture. We've seen it, for example, years ago. Have you guys heard of the so-called art called the piss Christ? Good for you. I'm sorry if you have seen it. It's a so-called art where someone took a cross and put it in a jar of urine. And Christians all over who heard about it were quite deeply offended. And I understand why that offends people. I wish however that we were more alarmed by taking the symbol of Christ in the Lord's Supper and treating it like it's an adult snack time in the worship service. We seem to have far too little concern about irreverence at the Lord's table. And Paul's warning against that. So what is Worthy partaking look like? Well, he gives two commands. Two commands that Paul gives to tell you what worthy partaking looks like. First, you're required to examine yourself in order to partake. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat and drink of the cup. Notice the verse. Let a person examine himself then... And so eat. Grammatically, we can say, let a person examine himself then and thus eat. Or you're essentially saying, eat it in this way. The examination of yourself must precede the eating. It's required to the eating. Here we clearly have a requirement that self-examination precedes the Lord's Supper. Now, to examine ourselves as language Paul uses in the Corinthian letters and other places, for example. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says this. Examine yourself, same basic instruction. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. So what does this self-examination mean? It means you're asking, have I confessed my sins? Before I come to the Lord's Supper, have I confessed my sins? This is why, by the way... We read the law and have a confession of sins and an assurance of pardon prior to the Lord's Supper. Have I confessed my sins? Have I repented of my sins? Do I trust in Christ as my gracious Savior? Further, do I love God's law? Do I want to keep it out of gratitude to him for his kindness to me? Does that gratitude show up in the way I love Christ's church and my neighbor, the way I love his word. See, the Corinthians claim to be in the faith, but some were excluding the poor. What does James say about that in James 2? You can tell your neighbor, be warm and well-fed, but if you're not going to help him out, it's just empty speech. You can profess to love Christ's church, but that doesn't show up in tangible ways. It's just empty speech. You can say you love the Lord, but if it doesn't actually show up in any desire to keep his law, you're just a hypocrite. They may have claimed to love the poor, but they were honoring Christ with their lips and their hearts were far from him. So we need to honestly examine ourselves. Now let's consider the second command he gives to define worthy partaking. Second, you're required to discern the body of Christ in order to partake. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To discern the body of the Lord is to understand that this is not like every other meal. This is a serious and weighty sacrament. It's not a mid-service snack. It's not big enough to provide that anyway. But it's certainly not something you ought to take lightly. We understand that we are mysteriously, by the Spirit, eating the body and drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not mean that the bread and the cup transform their substance such that you're actually chewing on flesh and drinking blood though it tastes just like bread and, well, in our case, Welch's grape juice. Right? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that somehow spiritually, not corporately and carnally, but spiritually you're eating the body, and drinking the blood of Christ. You're participating in him. You're participating in his body and blood. Listen to how the Belgic Confession in Article 35 answers this. What does it mean to feed upon Christ's body and blood? Listen to their language. Christ, that he might represent us unto us this spiritual and heavenly bread, hath instituted an earthly and visible bread... As a sacrament of his body and wine as a sacrament of his blood to testify by them unto us that as certainly as we receive and hold this sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths by which our life is afterwards nourished. We also do as certainly receive by faith. Now listen to this parenthetical. We do receive by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our soul. Faith is the hand and mouth of our soul. The true body and blood of Christ, our only Savior in our souls for the support of our spiritual life. As truly as you're eating bread and drinking the cup, you are by faith the hand and mouth of your soul participating in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So only those who both self-examine and discern the body of the Lord should partake of the Lord's Supper. Who understand it's not just juice and a cracker but understand that this is Christ's body and blood if they do not then they eat and drink judgment on themselves he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. 29 and Paul tells us how that was happening in Corinth what did their judgment look like look at verse 30 that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died he's talking about physical death here this is metaphorical you're taking the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner That's why some of you are weak and ill and have died physically. He goes on to say, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we had examined ourselves and come to a true conclusion about ourselves, then we wouldn't be being judged in this way and partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Here was what he's saying. This is not, their judgment was literally leading to physical death. That's a serious matter, but it's the judgment of discipline of the Lord, not condemnation to hell. It's as if the Lord is saying, I'm taking you out early before this gets worse. Now, with all that said, I want to come to three implications for us. Three implications for our church. First, the Lord's Supper is to be taken by those who give a credible profession of faith. The Lord's Supper is to be taken by those who give a credible profession of faith. Now, there are some who object to this idea because the occasion for the Lord's Supper is the Passover. There's a whole group of people, by the way, small group of people, but a group of people in American evangelicalism who think because the occasion of the Lord's Supper is the Passover and because the Lord's Supper is clearly connected to the Passover in important ways, that we ought to just be able to give it to little children. Why? Because we know that children were present in the households at the first Passover in Exodus 12. We know that. In fact, the Passover event in Exodus 12 was a household event. So we know children were present. Thus, why can't small children participate in the New Covenant equivalent? See, if they participated in the Passover there in Exodus 12, why not the New Covenant equivalent? That's the question. Well this argument's a misstep in four regards. I hope you're not trying to follow subpoints because you're in trouble. Let me give them to you quickly. First, no one believes that infants were eating charred lamb. Do you guys understand that? No one believes that infants were eating charred lamb and unleavened bread with bitter herbs. Nor that later in Israel's history was anybody giving infants wine. Second, it seems clear from Exodus 12 that the children who were partaking in the first Passover were old enough to intellect the faith. There was a catechetical exercise, catechesis, question and answer, instructional exercise in Exodus 12. The children would ask, why are we doing this? What does this mean? And the father would explain the Lord's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. So they're at least old enough to have that conversation. Third, the first Passover did not become the model. You hear this, did not become the model for the Passover meal in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. The first Passover in Exodus 12 did not become the model for the Passover meal in the Old Testament, nor for the Passover meal in the New Testament. In fact, it was the pilgrim Passovers that became the model when Israel went out on her pilgrimages that became the model. After Israel left Egypt and began their pilgrimage to the Promised Land, we read about Passover feasts, don't we? Listen to Exodus 23, 14 through 17. I'm not giving you all the context here where we leave out the women and children, because that's clear in both Deuteronomy 16, which I'll read from, and Exodus 23. But listen to this. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Exodus 12, first Passover. Exodus 23, pilgrim Passovers. Ready? You shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I command you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. In other words, whoever comes brings their offering. You shall keep the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, all your males appear before the Lord God. All your males. And they had to be circumcised adult males. That's clear from the passage. Listen to Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. They're bringing their own offering. These, again, are circumcised males of an older age who can bring their own offering. And actually, in these passages, the women and children are not required to come. In other words, the pilgrim Passovers required that their circumcised adult males come each year for the three feasts, which included Passover. The women and children were not required to attend. Now, as time developed, only the circumcised men 20 years and older would come for the Passover. Did you know that? Now, I'm going to tell you this. This is coming from the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees is in the apocryphal texts of the Old Testament. I'm not suggesting it's Scripture I am suggesting we know about what they were doing from it. Only men 20 years and older were coming to the Passover. By the 2nd century BC, we have a group called the Pharisees. You all have heard of them. They began teaching that only males who were 13 years old, in other words, males who had their bar mitzvah, could come for the Passover. Those males would come often to Jerusalem the year before when they were 12 years old to fast and pray so they can prepare for the next year's Passover. And interestingly enough, in Luke 2, we see Jesus coming at 12 years old at the time of the Passover for that very purpose. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover, Luke 2, 41. My point is not that the book of Jubilees is scripture, nor that the tradition of the Pharisees is scripture. We clearly know that. My point is that the commands regarding men... I'm going to say this also. My point is not that the command regarding men automatically excluded women and children. My point is simple. The pattern of the Old Testament regarding Passover is not that there was a command for small children absent faith to participate. That just is not the pattern, that small children absent faith are participating. Fourth and finally... Paul clearly commands that only those who can self-examine and discern the body of the Lord may participate. Thus, you must have a credible profession of faith to take the Lord's Supper. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism defines that. Listen, who should come to the Lord's table? This is number 81. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. Guilt. They know their guilt. Guilt but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Grace. These are the divisions of that catechism, incidentally. And who will also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Gratitude. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So the first clear implication is that only those who have a credible profession of faith should commune. Second clear implication The Lord's Supper is a public sacrament of Christ's church open to those who are publicly recognized as belonging to Christ's church. In every context, the Lord's Supper is a public practice. It's a public event. It is taken when Christ's people gather as a church. See that right here in the context. Further, it's a meal from which some people who gather can and should be excluded So it's a meal that happens in the gathered church and a meal in which some people should be excluded. How do we know that? Everyone who does not have a credible profession of faith and who is not publicly united to Christ's church should be excluded. Paul actually addresses that here. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, when he discusses cleansing out the leaven and expelling the immoral brother, they should be excluded from the table. Sovereign grace, the church hears and sees the public profession of faith made by people. And the church judges one another. 1 Corinthians 5, we don't judge those who are outside, but we do judge those who are inside. Not self condemning judgment. I mean, like self, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Looking down at someone. You guys understand what I'm saying, kind of judgment. But making honest assessments. The church practices excommunication. The church includes those who give a credible profession of faith, and the church excludes those who lack a credible profession of faith. We exclude those who aren't walking in godliness. The church receives you as a member who communes upon a credible profession of faith, and the church removes you from that membership of communing via the process of church discipline if you're an unrepentant sin. Now, here's where a distinction comes between Reformed Baptists and the Presbyterian Reformed, or the PNR. Reformed Baptists receive you as a church member. This is just a statement of fact, not a criticism. They receive you as a church member, when they baptize you upon the credible profession of faith, and then you're immediately communed. You're communed because you've been baptized upon a credible profession of faith, and you're received as a member that way. So Baptists have one kind of church member, a baptized communing member. That's it. Church members who are credible professors of faith, baptized and communing. That's the kind of membership Baptist churches have. Your unbaptized children who do not credibly profess faith are not considered church members in a Reformed Baptist church. I do not mean they're left outside in the parking lot or not cared for or anything else. I mean they're not church members in any sense. The Presbyterian and Reformed have the same practice for those who are baptized upon a credible profession of faith. In other words, if you're an unbaptized new convert, an adult man who walks in and hears the gospel and believes, and now they baptize you upon that profession of faith, and they commune you as a member at that time, they have the same practice. However, the Presbyterian Reformed also baptize the children of believers and call them members. Thus, the Presbyterian Reformed will only commune those baptized children upon a profession of faith. They'll only commune them. So the Presbyterian Reformed have two kinds of church members. Church members who are professing, credibly, baptized, and participating in the Lord's Supper communed. And church members who are children who have been baptized but who are not yet professing faith credibly and communed. They have both kinds of members. Are you guys tracking with me on the difference here? They have church members who are baptized children of believers who have not credibly professed faith and thus who are not communed and thus they do not take the Lord's Supper. Therefore, in Presbyterian Reformed churches, your children are considered members of Christ's church, but they are not considered communicant or communing members who get to take the Lord's Supper until they credibly profess faith. Now, how do children go about doing that in those kinds of churches? Well, just like everyone else they come to the elders remember you had a membership interview they come to the elders and you were asked to give your testimony and explain the gospel they come to the elders and they profess faith and they take member vows and they're made known to the church publicly and in this way they become communing members or communicant members it's not something they just do on their own it's something the church recognizes that's what many of you did when you became members here we expect that As your children grow up and come to faith, they'll follow the same kind of process. We'll be announcing some process to deal with that in the coming weeks. I can't announce it yet, but we will be dealing with that in the coming weeks. Let's turn to our third implication. The Lord's Supper is a weighty matter. This is where I'm closing, but it's not a gloomy matter. I really want you to get a hold of this. Here's my concern following this sermon. I'm concerned that some people in our congregation will hear me saying that you need to be worthy. I'm afraid some of you will hear me saying that you need to be worthy and the weightiness of all this will discourage you from participating in the Lord's Supper. But I want you to remember that Paul does not address worthy partakers, but rather partaking in a worthy manner. Who among us is worthy to participate in Christ? None of us. Therefore, while we should be circumspect before partaking and while we should treat the Lord's Supper as a weighty matter and thus why we should repent of our sins and pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we should not avoid the table until we think we have somehow earned enough merit from God to be worthy of it. That's never coming, folks. If you're waiting for the day that you're finally worthy of it, you'll never partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's been a problem in churches in history. The Lord's Supper is not a gloomy occasion at which we should often shy away because we're not worthy. The Lord's Supper is not a means of self-improvement and self-justification. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. This is the meal to which Christ welcomes weak and weary sinners who know their need of grace, grace found only in Christ, and grace found super abundantly in him that's what paul's teaching i want to conclude with a comment from charles hodge regarding this passage in first corinthians 11 listen to how he sums this up 19th century by the way presbyterian theologian at princeton this is what he sums this up there is therefore nothing in these passages that should surround the lord's table with gloom we are not called to the mount covered with clouds and darkness from which the signs of wrath come, but to Mount Zion, to the home of mercy and grace, where all is love, the dying love of him who never breaks the bruised reed. Let's give thanks for that. Father, we are thankful for the kindness that we've been shown in Christ. We recognize that we can never be worthy to participate in him. Yet you and your grace have united us to Christ through faith by the powerful work of the Spirit and given us new life in him so that we might be able to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. We pray that we would, that we would come to it knowing it is a weighty and serious sacrament given to Christ's church to confirm our faith in your promises in Christ. And to nourish our faith in the same. May we come knowing that. May we come humbly. In repentance for sins. Grateful for the grace of God that we know in Christ. We pray father that. You would cause us to. Come as weak and weary sinners. As those who know. Our need of the Lord Jesus. And that we would come with great thanksgiving in our hearts that you have provided him for us, that he laid down his life for us, that his blood was shed and his body was broken so that we might be forgiven our sins and saved. May we come ever thankful to the Lord's Supper. May we never treat it lightly. In Jesus' name, amen.